This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. I think everybody knows what we're doing here as we're listening to Michael Heiser and his argument to be sacramentarians. Right, and his his argument is is really based upon, <clears throat> so far as what we've seen, uh, based upon John chapter six, where he's made some correct moves, uh, and we've 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 accorded him uh, the the correctness of those moves. Right, uh, specifically, what he said is, look, John six has nothing to do with the sacrament of the altar. But now, uh, I think what we're going to see coming out here is that he's going to superimpose what has nothing to do with the sacrament of the altar upon the sacrament of the altar and our understanding of it. And that's going to be the big problem. All right, so let's give him a listen. Welcome back to the Naked Bible Podcast. In my previous Lord's Supper podcast episodes, I went through John chapter 6, the chapter that often causes a lot of the confusion that I described when introducing this topic. That's the chapter that has Jesus talking about the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, since his flesh and blood were the bread and wine. In the course of discussing that chapter, I tried to telegraph a few points about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. One, I don't really care to articulate a doctrine of the Lord's Supper on the basis of what is not said in the text. Biblical theology derives from the text, not our imagination or our traditions. We shouldn't do theology by speculation, even when that speculation turns into denominational traditions. What he's saying here is correct, but he's adopting the high ground as if the way that he's going to pursue this is not denominationally oriented at all, and and that he is just dealing with the naked scriptures, as he's been saying all along. What we are going to show you is that he is driven by an agenda, a very clear agenda. Second, I briefly made the case that John 6 doesn't really belong in the discussion of the Lord's Supper anyway, no matter how often that connection is made by church traditions and theology books. The only two traditions in which, uh, at least that I'm aware of, uh, and well, maybe there are three traditions that actually use John 6 to talk about the sacrament of the altar are the Catholics, right? In the Catholic Catechism, uh, we um, I brought it last week and I don't have it here today, but they specifically point to John chapter 6 for the, the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood of Christ. We disagree with that uh, just on the same basis that he would disagree with that, that it is not pointing to the Eucharist. But interestingly, the Calvinist and Swinglian tradition, which is really all Protestantism except for the Evangelical Lutheran Church, actually does make use of John chapter 6. And what they point to is uh, at the very end, all these people go away because these are this is a hard word that they can't accept, and they accuse anyone who says that the sacrament is the body and blood of Christ, they accuse them of Capernaitic eating, which is a sort of cannibalistic, mechanistic, ex opera operato kind of, of eating. That's what's imputed to the, the evangelical Lutheran church. And so the irony here is that the Lutherans have sequestered John 6 off of any discussion of the sacrament of the altar from the very beginning of their theology for the same exact reasons that he has sequestered it out of the discussion. The problem is the Zwinglians and the Calvinists turn around and then re-superimpose it upon the discussion. They say it has nothing to do with it, but then they say it does have to do with it. And this is going to be the problem. The reason is simple and straightforward. 
John 6 is not an account of the Last Supper. We agree! For crying out loud! The event upon which the Lord's Supper is based, at least according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Third, although John 6 isn't the Last Supper scene, Jesus is making important points about how belief in him is what brings salvation in that chapter. To do so, he creates an analogy between his body and blood and the bread and the wine. His body and blood would soon be given on the cross for the sins of humanity, not at a meal. And people would have to believe that his death and resurrection really could bring them eternal life. In making this point, Jesus says that hunger and thirst would be satisfied by, quote, coming to him and believing in him, unquote, not by eating bread and wine. Now it's time to move to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. The main chapter for that is 1 Corinthians 11. And to a great extent, this is really the heart of the matter. I think you'll be surprised at some things you'll see. Yeah, I'll say, when I started to study the Lord's Supper and what Paul said about it, yeah, I was really surprised growing up as a sacramentarian and actually teaching sacramentarian views. And what was the surprise? The fact that this is what Jesus says that it is, and it does what Jesus says that it does. So reading the text, uh, as you examined it carefully, as, as it were, the scales fell off. That's exactly right. You were able to sort of, what, fixate or... Uh, I mean, what, what is it? What happened? I mean, because you'd obviously read those words your whole life long, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what happened was, I mean, I guess theologically, my heterodoxical views became orthodox. And it's one of those things, we were actually talking about this last night in the uh, young adult class, about how when you go from heterodox views to orthodoxy, it's kind of like putting on braces Anything that's out of alignment that needs to get straightened, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a lot of pain and a lot of time that goes into adjusting and fixing. And unfortunately, this is the unfortunate part, honestly, sometimes you even lose friends Mm -hmm. and you lose family members when you don't agree with the heterodox view that we all once shared. And you go, no, this has actually been straightened out. To use Dietrich Bonhoeffer's term, the cost of discipleship, that one loses mother and father and sister and brother, and, and that's a very tough thing. So just to go back, though, if, how, do the, how, how do the scales fall off? I mean, so you read this text, 1 Corinthians 11, one way for 40-some years, and then suddenly uh, you see, uh, this is my body, and you you understand that Jesus isn't saying anything different from this is my body. Uh, he's not saying this represents my body, this is a symbol of my body, or anything like that. What What changes that? It was reading Lutheran authors and being exposed to a completely different interpretation than I was ever privy to. I mean, obviously, these things were always available to me, but I never... I never was encouraged. I never wanted to. These guys are all wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. And so to read it, and then, you know, you go through you, you, the mental gymnastics on your own where you go, this this is crazy talk. 
And then you read it and, and you continue to study and you think, they're on to something here. And then you see the scholarship that is behind this. This is not some, you know, guy off in his mother's basement producing this stuff. These are giants who are teaching this and believing this and writing about this. So again, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a it is a slow adjustment. So what what drives what what gets a person to actually even Say, you know what, uh, these guys I, that I've always considered to be heterodox, now uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to give uh, at least 10 minutes to to try to read one argument and understand it, even, even if what I'm doing is trying to shoot it, you know, shoot it down. Well, in my experience, it was despair. Mm-hmm. That's what drove me. It wasn't curiosity. It would be nice if people would follow this line of thought and thinking through curiosity. Sort of Berean-like, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, unfortunately, it was uh, it was absolute and utter despair. Well, it, interestingly, uh, it, maybe this brings up something. So one road to it is, is despair, mm-hmm. and, and that's a sort of uh, forceful road. But what we hope our listeners are doing is adopting the attitude of the Bereans. They are held out as an example to, to all Christians uh, to examine the Scriptures to see if these things be so. And what we hope that listeners are doing is as they are hearing their own evangelical or Baptist or Calvinist or Swinglian pastor talk about the sacrament of the altar, that they're also hearing what we're saying here and pointing them to the scriptures where these things are taught explicitly. You're exactly right. And I think to myself before the despair, how I would have heard what you just said right there, I would like to think that I would say, okay, I'll take you up on that. But there's a part of me that goes, why would I do that? I'm right. You're wrong. It's a sense of arrogance and pride. Why would I even entertain such a thought or waste my precious time to study the scriptures? And I think we're all wired this way, aren't we? Fairly sure of our opinions. And so here's the thing. We're not talking about opinions here. Mm-hmm. This is not Pastor Kearns's mm-hmm. in my opinion Mm-mm. or the opinion of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. This mm-hmm. is not anything except for what the scriptures themselves teach. And we hope that you will stay tuned and follow us through this because this discussion is extremely important. 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, those chapters, will be our focus in this podcast and the one following. Let's start with chapters 8 through 10 since understanding what's going on in those three chapters is crucial to following what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11, the chapter where he actually writes about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is recognized by all New Testament scholars as being a large chunk of material covering basically one subject, the matter of how to handle matters of dispute among Christians especially where there doesn't seem to be a clear textual basis to make a decision. The issue Paul focuses on is whether it was okay for believers to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's the subject of 1 Corinthians 8. This issue takes Paul into all sorts of issues, foreign gods, idolatry, sacrifice, and how to deal with disagreements. Paul addressed the same broad issue in Romans 14. You can look at that later since we're sticking to Corinthians here. Now let's read 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone who sees you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's the end of what we'll read. In a nutshell, Paul says, who cares about the meat sacrificed to idols? According to verse 8, we're no closer to God if we eat or abstain, so eating is not of itself wrong. The real issue is how the eater treats the non-eater and vice versa. The eater should avoid eating so as to not prompt the abstainer to defile their conscience. The abstainer shouldn't look down on the eater as though he's doing something wrong. As for Paul, he'd choose to abstain for the long run for the sake of a brother. Why bring this up? What does it have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, stay with me. Right after Paul makes his self-sacrificial comments in chapter 8, sacrificing his own liberty in the eating issue for other believers, he launches into a defense of his apostleship in chapter 9. In the course of his own defense, Paul justifies the notion that even though he won't take advantage of it, he has a scriptural right to be supported as an apostle. And he says so in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, which read, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Unquote. In the Old Testament, part of the way an Israelite priest was paid for their service was receiving a portion of certain sacrifices. It's significant that the sacrifices of which the priest could partake were not sacrifices of atonement for sin. The priestly food came from the peace offerings in Leviticus 7, verses 33 through 36. Israelites were instructed on what to bring and how much the priest could take. Paul's point is that just as the Mosaic law called for priests to share in the Lord's sacrifices for their own sustenance, so should an apostle be sustained by the people to whom he ministers. I know it isn't clear how this context relates to the Lord's Supper, but it does play a role, and we'll get there. In 1 Corinthians 10, 
Paul returns to the eating of the meat sacrificed to idols issue and makes another statement about it. And this one seems completely at odds with what he said earlier in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he basically said, who cares if you eat that meat? Here, it sounds like a different story. But there are hints in the text that clarify Paul's concern in his, this new chapter. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Now that's the end of our section in 1 Corinthians 10. I want to go back to verse 14 and point out a few things. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now the word participation there is the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship, some sort of solidarity. He continues, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, the word is koinonia. Now he says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Once again, the word is koinonos, related to koinonia. Uh, same word family there. Paul says this one more time. He says in verse 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You guessed it. The word there again is koinonos, just like koinonia, this idea of fellowship or solidarity. So Paul's big concern is that What's going on creates some sort of fellowship or solidarity with demonic entities. Now, Paul is well aware, well aware that his words here might seem inconsistent with what he said in chapter 8, when he clearly didn't really care about eating the meat. He specifically anticipates that question in verse 19 when he says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He knows people are going to be wondering that. So how is he consistent 
How does he answer his own question? And for our purposes, what is the applicable point to the Lord's Supper, which Paul turns to in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, right on the heels of this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols and having fellowship with demons? What Paul is concerned with in 1 Corinthians 10 is fellowship or participation, either with God or with demonic entities. The Greek word translated participation, again, in all these instances is koinonia or koinonos, elsewhere translated fellowship. And here's where Paul's illustration about the Old Testament priests sharing in the offerings back in 1 Corinthians 9 becomes important. Paul argues based on the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the priests ate part of the sacrifice as their payment for their service, that when one participates in the sacrifice and partakes a portion of a portion of the sacrifice, then solidarity or fellowship with God is established. Such sacrifices were essentially communal meals between the priests and God. Paul says that the same is true when pagans sacrifice their sacrifices. There is solidarity established. Consequently, he wanted believers in Jesus. And we remember that in the New Testament, believers are called priests. It's the priesthood of the believer. Paul wants believers in Jesus to avoid any connection to the actual ritual of sacrifice. This is why he adds that believers could eat the meat that was later sold in the marketplace. This created a disconnect between the ritual and the meat. There would therefore be no fellowship with demons and no confusion created as to whether or not the eaters were in fellowship with the demons to whom the pagans offered sacrifice. All this is the context for 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's discussion of the Lord's Supper, as we'll see, Paul casts the Lord's Supper as a communal meal, and that's the way it's portrayed in 1 Corinthians 11. The body of Christ was not re-crucified in a symbolic ritual, since, as Hebrews 7.27 tells us, his sacrifice was done once for all. We don't get grace from eating the bread and drinking the wine. The Old Testament priests didn't receive any grace from the Old Testament sacrifices either. Okay, stopping this right here, I think he just did it again, what we saw him do in John 6, in that he went back to the Levitical laws and then said something didn't happen there, ergo it doesn't happen here either. I think that's exactly what he's done, isn't it? He sort of tipped his hand, didn't he? He said uh, the first statement out of his mouth was, we don't get grace from eating bread and drinking wine. The Levitical priests didn't either. You know where he's going with this. He's trying to deny the bestowal of grace through the, the Eucharist. You don't get it unless Jesus says you get it. And if Jesus says you get it, then by golly, you get it. Exactly. And what he's done, in fact, he's used a, a very clear New Testament passage, that Hebrews passage that he was just talking about, to say, look, this is not a re-sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. All the Levitical sacrifices are done because the, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin has been made in the death of Christ. Well and good. We couldn't agree more. And this goes right along with what you're saying. If there's a clear word in the New Testament that breaks an Old Testament analogy, 
then it's broken, and you've got to allow that to stand. You can't foist the Old Testament teaching upon, upon this. Another thing that's interesting that I think he's missing here is that while Paul has developed this very helpful and complicated argument about meat sacrifice to idols, the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed was the night of the Passover. And so the, the, the sacrifice of the lamb at the Passover, a couple things that are important. Number one, was not consumed only by the priests, but by everybody at the table. Number two, was a means of saving the people of Israel. Number three, could be indulged in only if you were circumcised or, or a woman uh, in, uh, under the house of a man who was circumcised. So in other words, this is a meal, unlike priestly meals, this is a meal for God's people. And what did it do? It saved them from death. That's the analogy from the Old Testament that we ought to be talking about here that Paul draws such clear attention to. So as you mentioned, there's this uh, sort of intentional obfuscation going on. And I think that's uh, become readily apparent here. Uh, take our eye off the ball, point us in one direction so that I can slip in and say, bread and wine don't bestow grace. Right. However, when you do look back at Leviticus, having taught Leviticus here at our church for about uh, six or seven weeks, there was something that was gained by touching and consuming something that was considered holy. And, and even most holy, right? Correct. Right. Yep. So if you... I mean, the scriptures are very, very clear. When the priest were to touch the altar, it made them holy. And this was the thing that I was trying to get across to the people in the class, which was a, a, just an absolutely amazing thought to me. Holiness is a wonderful thing. God wants us to live in holiness because it is so good. However, that same holiness can destroy you if you don't approach God in the way that he says do it. As we see with uh, Aaron's own sons. Sure. Correct? Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the other thing that's so interesting is that as uh, John Kleinig points out in his commentary on Leviticus, that holiness radiates from the Holy of Holies, from the most holy place, out to the people of Israel. And the priests become this sort of mediator of, of the holiness. And so Israel can be counted holy because the priests are counted holy by by their ingestion of the sac of the most holy things, right? The meat sacrificed and so on. Well, you just touched on it though, meat sacrificed and priests. This is God distributing his holiness through means. Yet again, which is what we see over and over and over. And he says, if you touch this right here, you're going to be unholy, like a, an animal carcass. A you dead mean he person. doesn't say he doesn't say, uh, you know, when you want to be holy, remember what I did back in no, uh, you know, a few years ago no. when we crossed the Red Sea. No, he says, touch something, <laughs> touch this right here, you become holy. This brings the Bible, especially things like the Old Testament, like Leviticus, brings it to life. You see what God is like, you see what God is doing, and you see the means that he will use to bestow holiness to his people. And it actually explains why the Lord Jesus established a church, doesn't it? Uh, what, what is the point of a church if all you need to do is, you know, somehow in your mind go to Calvary's, you know, holy mountain? You don't need any anything for that except for your Bible. And in fact, you know, part of the problem of church life in America 
has been the destruction of the connection between attending church and believing in Christ. When that connection is destroyed, there is no reason to go to church. Which brings up a whole nother issue in my mind. You know, this past week it was uh, recognized all over the world the death of Billy Graham, whose message over however many decades was believe in Jesus. And I'm not faulting the Billy Graham Association. I mean, they really worked hard with the local churches in trying to get people who make decisions at the stadiums to get those people involved in a local church. I recall when uh, Billy Graham came to, uh, to our town years and years ago and the story about a pastor friend of mine who was on the pastoral committee who was working many, many months before Billy Graham came. And then they had follow-up meetings after the crusade was over. Thousands of people accepted Jesus as their Savior. And he's saying this with scare quotes. And as a result of that, these pastors all had a meeting afterwards, and they're looking at all of these decision cards, and they were asking the question, out of the thousands of people who accepted Christ, you know, there's however many of us pastors at these 70, 80 churches, we should have at least seen some bump in our numbers in the last six, eight weeks. There's one pastor who says we have one couple that's come to our church as a result of the Billy Graham crusade. Hmm. So my point is, it's anecdotal, but it's making your point as the disconnect between believing in Jesus and the church has become wider and wider and wider. I think that's really good. And, and if people think it's just belief in Jesus, and, and belief uh, is packed with all of this sort of what I like to think of as American optimism, right? This, uh, you know, if you believe it, it's going to come true. Build it and they will come, that kind of thing. Then you can believe in Jesus where, wherever you, you know, want to be. And, and look, I'm not denying that a believer outside of church during the week isn't a believer in Christ. But what I am saying is that if, if you have no sense of how God brings— oh, I mean, look at this, okay? What is belief in Jesus? Is it believing he exists or is it believing that he forgives sins? If it's the latter, you need the forgiveness of sins because you are a sinner. The question is, what do you believe? I think that a lot of these people just give intellectual assent to the idea that there was this nice man by the name of Jesus, but they don't see him as fundamentally the sin forgiver, and therefore they don't see any reason to go where he has promised to be, namely in his word and in his sacraments, to give them the forgiveness of sins. And Paul is drawing a correlation between what the priests did, how they partook of sacrifices and what's going on in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. There's absolutely no scriptural justification for the idea that someone gets sanctified in the sense of saving grace or something that helps you be saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper. That didn't happen in the Old Testament context and Paul links that Old Testament context to the Lord's Supper. That's kind of a big claim to make there, wouldn't you say? I, I, I would say that, and especially, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, I, I think you made just a, a really good point. 
uh, yeah, it doesn't bestow grace unless the Lord Jesus says that it does, right? And, and you know, he does. This is for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. If that's not grace, I don't know what is, okay? But you could go back, you could go back to the Garden of Eden, and though there was something eaten there, it was not for grace. It was for judgment. Right. One was for grace and one was for judgment, correct? The tree of life for great, the grace of everlasting life, and the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil for judgment. Um, and so in faith, the abstention from that brought life, or at least didn't bring death. So let's talk a little bit about the Levitical priesthood and how that rolls into the New Testament. Now, mind you, in in the book of Numbers, uh, early on, first four chapters, the Lord reiterates the division between the tribes of Israel, and uh, we get the tribe of Levi pulled out, in a sense, and replaced by the two sons of Joseph. And so the Levites are these special people. In Numbers 3, they stand in for the firstborn in all of the houses of Israel, and they have to be redeemed. Now, they are redeemed there by five shekels a head. Uh, it's 200. So, so here's what happens. There are 22,000 Levites, including the house of Aaron, and there are 22,273 firstborn in the entire house of Israel, apart from the tribe of Levi. And what the Lord says is, look, I'm going to make the tribe of Levi your substitute. I, I'm going to provide them for you. You don't have to um, go and redeem all of your firstborn sons. But there are 273 left over. So what provision does the Lord give? The provision that the Lord gives is that you can redeem these remaining 273 by coming to the temple and providing five shekels ahead according to the shekel of the temple. Now, look at what St. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's writing this to the Holy Christian Church. This is the same book in which uh, St. Peter also says, chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's hearkening back to Leviticus and the Levites and how they were called and used and the vocation that they had in the nation of Israel. Correct. And, and what he's saying is that the entire, the entire Christian church can be prefigured, or excuse me, not prefigured, can be figured as the house of, of Levi, uh, as these special people, uh, th this particular people for God. Now, let's use this information to, to query his whole point about uh, the eating of sacrifices. Well, even before you go there, when you were talking about First Peter, I was reminded here just of... Uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, open quote, you shall be holy for I am holy, end quote. Again, if I'm not mistaken, that's Leviticus chapter 19. So, he, your point is, is that Peter 
over and over and over again is drawing from what takes place in Leviticus that many of his writers, especially early on, would have been all steeped in. They would have made these connections, uh, whereas we, we, we have to do a lot more digging and thinking about them. Good. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, and so uh, how does this connect back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? That Paul is using the exact same illustration, say, that, that Peter is. Right, and that in the Christian mind at this point in time, as they're thinking about the Holy Christian Church, they're thinking about it as, at least as we see here in Peter, as the Levitical priesthood, right? And Paul even talks about this. Uh, is, it, is it Romans um, 12 or 13? where our bodies become living sacrifices. Well, this, this whole business of sacrificing yourself, look, this is in the, this is in the Lord's provision of the Levites, the 22,000 Levites for the firstborn of the house of Israel, right? This is the living sacrifice that the Lord provides for Israel so that they don't have to redeem themselves. The whole point here is that, uh, yeah, we follow what he's saying, but this is more complicated uh, than he um, makes it seem. Uh, number one. And number two, just to go back to Pastor Kearns' earlier word, yes, nothing bestows grace unless the Lord Jesus says it does. So going back to Leviticus, he was saying, didn't he say something about how there's no Old Testament precedent or scripture that talks about... uh, He says only the Levites can eat the food sacrificed at the temple. Well, there's a number of different sacrifices, and there were some that he's right, that the priests were the only ones to consume, but I'm thinking about the peace offering and how the peace offering was designed, and this is in the first couple of chapters of Leviticus, when something went really, really well in your life, you would take an offering to the tabernacle, the priests then would do what they were supposed to do, but they were going to give the bulk of that sacrifice back to you so that you could then go and enjoy that with your friends and family. If you wanted to pass this out to, uh, to those who were less fortunate than you, you could do this. This is in Leviticus chapter 7, uh, verses 11 and following. Interestingly, right? Why do we why do we call the sacrament of the altar the Eucharist sometimes? Well, I, I think it's I think it's related to this whole business of the peace offering, because it is a, a Thanksgiving, a great Thanksgiving for what God has done for you, and and, and continues to and do. continues to do, and and he and uh, which doesn't which doesn't reduce it to mere Thanksgiving. So I'm reminded of Psalm uh, Psalm 22 where there's an allusion that the psalmists make to to a peace offering or to maybe what we would call a, a votive offering. Which, so, which is a subcategory in Leviticus 7 of the peace offering. So in verse 25, it says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. So again, a votive offering, a peace offering, is going to be where you are going to go to the temple slash tabernacle and you're thanking God for some great thing that has happened in your life. And so he says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. And then it's like he's coming out from where the priests do their thing. They sacrifice just a small portion of it, and then they give it back to you. And he says, 
the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. So this is a sharing that one is doing with whoever, if you want to gather with your family or friends, if you want to give it out to those less fortunate than you, whatever the case, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And who is the I voice in Psalm 22, Pastor Kearns? It is the Messiah. It is the Messiah. And the Messiah is speaking all the way through here, right? Uh, From you, that is Yahweh, comes my, Jesus's, praise in the great congregation. My, Jesus's vows, I, Jesus, will perform before those who fear him, namely the Lord. So how does he perform his vow? What is his vow? His vow is his self-immolation on the Holy Cross. Or you could just say to do the will of Of the Father Father who Mm -hmm. sent him. Entirely, right? Which is just that. Yep, Philippians 2 stuff. And then, uh, what does he do uh, when that that has been done? Well, uh, he gives it to the afflicted who shall eat and be satisfied. And so here, the peace offering— Well, then in verse 29, to to underscore your point, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Good. And then we get a shift in voice, right? Correct. Uh, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You do show forth the Lord's death until he come again. Now, now, granted, this is a messianic psalm, but it just goes to underscore how, what did I see that you wrote on one of the whiteboards for your class? The whole scripture is pushing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And if we miss that, we miss it. Uh, we miss the scriptures. Additionally, the fact that no portion of the atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament were shared by the Old Testament priests for consumption reinforces this point. So what do we get out of the Lord's Supper? Well, we get what the Old Testament priests got. By Paul's analogy, we have fellowship with God, which ought to cause us to grow in gratitude and thanksgiving that our sins have been forgiven already on the basis of the death of the sin offering. Again, the sin offering was a different offering from the one the priests ate of. What the priests were partaking of was distinct from the sin offering. Okay, that is accurate, but the burnt offering, it was burnt whole. God ate that. A holocaustes, right? Where we get our word holocaust. Right. This was a distinct event from the bread and the wine now being consumed in the Lord's Supper. So again, Paul, by virtue of analogy, is distinguishing the event that saves Jesus' death and resurrection from the Lord's Supper. That isn't what contributes in any way to salvation. But we don't agree there. Correct. And and here's here's the problem that we observe, and I think we've observed it many times in the evangelical theology, is this rupture between salvation one and salvation distributed it's as if you have salvation one you've got everything that you need and it does nothing to ask the question well how in the world do i get it once it's been one and you know there are all sorts of um human analogies that you can think of right if i if i put a million dollars in the bank pastor kearns for you uh and it's it's in an account it's all one it's there it's for pastor kearns but i don't give you the account number 
you have no way of benefiting from it whatsoever. And we see this in Leviticus. Isn't this the case, right? God already has holiness. It is there. But that doesn't make the people holy. There are these means by which the Lord distributes this holiness to the people. The same thing goes on in the New Testament world. Jesus has won his won the salvation of, of all sinners on the, on the Holy Cross, but he distributes it through specific means, right? And let's just recount what those means are. The preaching of the word, you know, Romans chapter 10. Those means are the, the baptism. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, right? Their Lord distributes salvation through that. And then finally, we have the forgiveness of sins distributed in the sacrament of the altar. Jesus specifically says, this is for you. Why, Pastor Kearns? For the forgiveness of your sins. Salvation distributed. And this is where I was thinking about how in the small catechism where Luther, I believe, in the third article talks about how the Holy Spirit, because I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to him, he has called me by the gospel. Now this is a use of means in which he does this. And he has enlightened me with his gifts. He sanctified me and kept me in the true faith. And so he does all of this through various means. That's the distributing of his holiness, his forgiveness, life, salvation, all of that. Of the salvation one, right? And so we would say, we would agree with him in this regard, that the performance of a baptism the receiving of the sacrament of the altar, the preaching of the word, does nothing to win salvation. It does nothing at all. That has already been taken care of. But the winning of that salvation could not be distributed apart from preaching, baptism, and the sacrament of the altar. And that's where the problem lies. To forgiveness. This setting, the Lord's Supper being a communal meal to celebrate what Jesus has already done for us on the cross, is the key to embracing a biblical theology of the Lord's Supper. I'll describe that theology in detail in the next episode of the Naked Bible Podcast. I don't necessarily want that theology, that biblical theology that he's got going on there. This a-biblical or unbiblical theology, <laughs> right? right? Uh, that we're doing a big yippee for Yahweh uh, and when we celebrate the sacrament of the altar. It makes me wonder why, then, if it's a celebration, the Baptists and the <laughs> evangelicals don't use wine. <laughs> That's much more celebratory. But, uh, I mean, uh, right, uh, what they're doing is, is reducing it to a memorial meal. I mean, this is the trajectory that he has set out upon. Call it a celebration, call it a a memorial, it doesn't matter. It's one and the same thing, and it reduces the sacrament of the altar to something that the Lord Jesus never instituted. Well, I can't wait to hear his uh, next and last episode as he finally goes in for the kill. Last time on the podcast, we looked at 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the three chapters that give us the context for 1 Corinthians 11 the key passage with respect to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. That context had a lot to do with the Old Testament notion of participation in sacrifices as a communal meal. As such, Paul's discussion of the Lord's Supper is linked to that idea, the notion of a fellowship meal. We also noted that in such meals with respect to Old Testament priests, no portion of the atoning sacrifices were given to the priests for consumption. 
Instead, they took their portion of meat from other sacrifices known as peace offerings. As such, the priests didn't get grace from God for salvation or forgiveness in such participation. Rather, there was the enjoyment of fellowship that was possible by virtue of other sacrifices that purified the priests and atoned for sin and put them into a right relationship with God. So what? You know, this is the the New Testament. It's a new meal. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how much uh, can be derived from the Old Testament, which isn't to say that the, the two Testaments don't speak to each other. But again, you know, just like what we saw with his treatment of John 6, where he says this has nothing to do with a sacrament, and then he applies it to the sacrament. Here we have something that has nothing to do with the sacrament, and we're applying it to the sacrament, which is just a strange method of exegesis from my perspective. And then on an, another note, as I just listened to him say that, I don't know, it just seems like he's even minimizing what took place back with the Levites and the people of Israel. Oh, it's just a fellowship thing. To me, it's like he's turning it down, the the emphasis, the importance of it. It's just kind of, oh, you know, just bringing it down a little bit. I don't think when the glory of God, Shekinah, or when the cloud covered the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant, or there was the fear of death when one goes in inappropriately. I just don't think that that was turned down. That was an intense way in which the Lord said, I want to share who I am and what I am with you. But we've got to do it my way, because if we don't do it my way, it's going to actually destroy you. And there are plenty of examples of that in, in the Old Testament, right? I, I think you're exactly right. This this whole notion, you know, and I think you're this is exactly where you're going with what you're saying, is that there's this impartation of holiness through the meal and, and it's or not through the meal, through the sacrifice. Well, and this is where the evangelical, which Michael Heiser is, they will not submit to the truth that the Holy Spirit is tied to instruments. They won't go there. And so, just like the Israelites, the Holy Spirit was tied to instruments. It was a sacrifice. It was an altar. It was a priesthood. It was ritual. The Holy Spirit was tied to those things. Well, the Lord is the same, still tied to certain things. And he actually tells you, this is what I'm tied to. Exactly, right. And I think you're. I think this is an interesting point. So you're doing this analogy between the Old and New Testament. And, and we've just said, well, you know, don't take what doesn't apply uh, and apply it to the, to the New Testament. Here we've got a clear example where, as you said, the Lord ties the Holy Spirit to means in the Old Testament. And we find specifically biblically in the New Testament record that the Lord ties himself to these other means, okay? So this is no taking something from the Old Testament that doesn't apply and making it speak to the New Testament. Oh, no doubt. And I think we're touching upon the difference between the Reformed camp and the Lutheran camp. The Reformed camp sees God high and lifted up, you know, shine Jesus, shine, transcendent God, But the only way to get up to that transcendent God is through their own hearts, imaginations, what's going on inside of them. The Lutheran, as you have pointed out many times before, the Lutheran sees Jesus with fingernails dirty, him coming to you. 
and he's tying himself to certain means. Yeah, and you know, there's an interesting uh, sort of liturgical piece that I that I think is so fascinating. It's the Sorsum Corda, "Lift Up Your Hearts," and this is entirely underst- in, understood entirely differently between the Reformed on the one hand, to the extent that they use the liturgy, and the Lutherans on the other hand. The Reformed and Calvin took that to mean ascend in your heart, in your soul, to heaven where Jesus is locked up, right? right? And the Lutherans say, lift up your hearts. Well, why are we lifting up our hearts? It's not to ascend to heaven. It's because it's the same sort of phrase as, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Why do we lift up our hearts? Well, here comes the forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus is descending to us rather than us ascending up to him. Let me ask you a question about that. Calvin and they were working with the Western right at this point with the lift up your hearts? Correct, correct. Right, so, so, so Calvin's doing the right thing in a sense, right? He's saying, look, we've got this piece in the liturgy and— We're not throwing it out. No, we want to understand what it means. But if sure, Jesus yeah, has you know, ascended you have the lex- into heaven and sits at the lex- right credendi, hand of God right, the Father uh, Almighty, the, the that we, then that means uh, when we pray, lift up our hearts, uh, we got to go to Him. He can't come to us, exactly. which is right. he's, he's <laughs> which is very important. We ought to do something Al Gore's that because that lock, is so lockbox in the lockbox. That right there, as we'll see in this podcast, Paul proceeds from this context. To cast the Lord's Supper as a so meal about fellowship, that the way that not about receiving the way saving grace about or soliciting forgiveness. I think that would be a, so. A really he, good, here, what we've uh, got, presumably, episode. is that it must be the one and it must not be the other. It's a meal of fellowship, but it's not a meal of the bestowal of grace or, and I'm not sure where he gets this word, the soliciting of forgiveness. Who's doing the solicitation? Uh, you know, is it is it us trying to do this? I mean, this gets into Roman Catholic uh, re-presentationalism where basically the theology, the sort of new post-Vatican II theology is that in the celebration of the Eucharist, you're holding up before the Father, the body and blood of Jesus and saying, Heavenly Father, remember us according to your mercy. So you're, in in that sense, soliciting uh, the forgiveness of sins through the sacrament of the altar. Okay, but here's my problem with where he's going here. We must understand the sacrament of the altar according to the texts that actually speak about it. And what he's doing is he is pitting St. Paul against, let's take Matthew as an example, right? And Matthew clearly says to the disciples, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here, Jesus clearly says it's for the forgiveness of sins. So, so what he's doing, actually, is he's pitting Paul against Jesus. Where is he going with this? Is, is Matthew a later writer, an earlier writer? Is Paul the authoritative interpretation of this instead of Matthew? Uh, do we not understand all of these passages together? Well, I'm thinking about the hermeneutical rule of clearer passages govern unclear passages. But these are not unclear passages. Correct. Jesus, is that what you're saying? Jesus point blank says, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Right. Like all other passages should be interpreted in light of that one because it's so clear. Correct. And, and so what, he, what he's doing, though, actually, is he's taking, he's taking his exegesis, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, which 
isn't actually speaking specifically to what the sacrament of the altar is, and he's superimposing it upon his understanding of the sacrament of the altar and ruling out what Jesus says it is in Matthew chapter 20-whatever, 6. So let's jump into 1 Corinthians 11. The section on the Lord's Supper begins in verse 17 of that chapter. Paul tells the Corinthians, quote, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Unquote. Paul notes right away that when the Corinthians get together for the Lord's Supper, which is what he's going to talk about in the next few verses, something is amiss. Something is going on that he can't commend or endorse. Now, continuing at verse 18, quote, Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Unquote. Now those were verses 18 through 20, and Paul's charge is pretty straightforward. When the Corinthians meet for the Lord's Supper, they are doing something that invalidates it as being a true observance of the Lord's Supper. Paul alludes to a factionalism problem, but then he gets even more specific in verses 21 and 22. Quote, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Unquote. This description may seem odd until one realizes that in New Testament times, there was a meal associated with the Lord's Supper. This was probably done to parallel the communal meal idea associated with the Old Testament priests. After all, according to New Testament theology, the church was a, quote, priesthood of believers, unquote. That comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. We know from ancient descriptions of what the early Christians did that a, a love feast of some kind, as it was called, was tied to the observance of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, we get a glimpse from Paul of how the Corinthian Christians were abusing that custom. First, Paul notes that, quote, each one goes ahead with his own meal, unquote. Apparently, some were bellying up to the table and eating their fill, and others got neglected and went hungry. Additionally, this bit of information lets us know that a good amount of food was present, enough to fill a number of people as a regular meal, apparently at the expense of others. And Paul was angry that certain people were being humiliated when they tried to participate in the meal. He simply can't commend their behavior. Second, Paul says that some people were getting drunk at this meal. Again, that's evidence that a good amount of wine was present, not just one little cup full for people to pass around or the little tiny cups that are often used today. Here we have it, the evidence of Scripture that wine is used in the meal. This is an interesting thing that many of the, the evangelical-slash-reformed camp does not use wine. They, they use grape juice, and this goes back to their temperance movement of the 
of the 20th century, early 20th century, late 19th. This was a meal spread out for the people in the church. Now let's look at verses 23 through 26. Paul continues, quote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Unquote. Several observations from this portion are very important. First, Paul's language clearly links his understanding of the Lord's Supper to the Last Supper, not John chapter 6, which isn't connected to the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. You recall that John 6 is obviously seven chapters removed from John 13, where we get the Last Supper scene. It's absolutely clear that Paul is not thinking about John 6 when he instructs the Corinthians. He's thinking about the Last Supper. We agree! For crying out loud! Second, Paul says he had received this instruction directly from the Lord. Now this is noteworthy in that if you go back and look at the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, there is a command to take and eat. And only one of the gospels, Luke 22, 19 and 20, has the command to do this in remembrance of me. In fact, these are the only commands in the New Testament about why we are to observe the Lord's Supper. This is it. In both cases, we are to do it not to receive grace or to be forgiven, not so that we can be saved, but simply, as the text says point blank, to remember the Lord's death and proclaim it, that is, the gospel, until he returns. That's all. So this is why, Pastor Bruss, tables at Baptist and evangelical churches all over the world have engraved in them, do this in remembrance of me. Heiser's right. Well, (laughs) Look, those are the words of Jesus, but it, l- let me let me just make a, a an argument here that the translation is is wrong to do this in remembrance of me. So the traitor is the translator the here. The translator is the traitor. Yep. You know, the the word here for memory or remembrance is anamnesis. That means remembering. It's the it's the action that somebody does. Now, this is interesting. There are two ways to say this in Greek, okay? You can say into memory of me or into my memory or unto my memory or for the sake of my memory. <clears throat> That's really important. Uh, you can say estein amen anamnesin, as Jesus says, or estein anamnesin emu. Now, there's something, there's a difference here between an, an objective genitive and a subjective genitive. And really, the question of the objective genitive versus the subjective genitive is who's doing the doing, right? So if we say fear of God, that is us 
fearing God. That is a, an objective genitive. If I say my fear, that is me doing the fearing. And so in a sense that, that my is acting as the subject of the fear. Well, here the way that Jesus puts it is that he uses the subjective uh, sense of the possessor, my. So who is doing the remembering? It's Jesus doing the it's, remembering. Exactly. And this harkens back to all of these Old Testament locutions. And in fact, when we get to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same exact word is used. It's, it's either menesis or anamnesis. And this is what the Lord does when he remembers his promises. So now, in English, when we would see something like, O Lord, remember Israel. Right. This is exactly it, right? Or when um, when the Lord remembers Noah. Right. Okay. I mean, all of these things. We're asking in that particular instance that the Lord would remember Israel, deliver her from her enemies, or whatever the context of the psalm is, as opposed to me remembering Israel. Exactly. So, so, so there's a difference between remembrance and memorial, right? It's not a memorial of Jesus. It's, it's Jesus's remembering. Remembrance has to be understood this way. That is such a, a beautiful understanding because anybody who's familiar with the scriptures, they can uh, subjectively recall how the Lord remembering Noah, the Lord remembering Abraham, the Lord remembering, you know, and it sounds odd, but we just take it as Bible speak and we just kind of move on. And we don't tie that remembrance of the Lord doing the remembering to the Lord's Supper at all. We put it all in the subjective and think that it's then up to us within our own powers and our own cognitive ability to remember. Right, and that puts our salvation in great question because if it's up to me, uh, I'm going to mess it up all the time. How, how much do I have to remember? How seriously do I have to remember? You know, the, the Lord, in, in memory of his own promises, objectively acts on behalf of those to whom he has made his promises. And most evangelicals, I would assume, if they're uh, just somewhat familiar with theology, like they would ascribe to divine monergism. Like, they, they know what that is, that, that God is in the driver's seat. But here, it's not even synergism. It's like it is all up to the sinner, to the Christian, to the, to the believer. To remember. To, to remember. remember. Right. One wonders why we've come up with so many reasons to observe the Lord's Supper when we have only these commands, and they're so clear and consistent. We have so many Ways? I mean, there's only—I was thinking there was only two different ways. Either A, it is what it says it is, or B, it's just a memorial meal that just represents, and it's all up to you to remember. And maybe there's a third one, right? And it's the well, unbloody sacrifice uh, or the representationalism of the Roman Catholics. So these three ways are the many ways based upon the clear reading of Scripture? I guess that's what he's saying, right? Okay. And, and I guess I guess in addition, what he's saying is um, people ascribe to it, uh, like we do, the reception of grace and the bestowal of the forgiveness of sins and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and I think he's saying that's one of the many ways that is obviously false. Got it. Paul continues in verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and we pick up with verse 27 quote 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Unquote. Here's where we get into more disputed territory. What does it mean to eat and drink, quote, in an unworthy manner, unquote? Why should we examine ourselves? What does, quote unquote, discerning the body mean? With respect to what should we judge ourselves so as to avoid being disciplined by God with sickness and even death? Now, just about everyone I've read in evangelical circles on this section of 1 Corinthians 11 assumes that the issue being described is unconfessed sin in the heart of the one partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so evangelicals teach that we need to confess sin before partaking or make restitution with the wronged brother before partaking. Now, just before he continues to go on, Pastor Bruce, I mean, I do have to say that this is exactly the way that I used to believe. This is exactly what I used to teach, what he just said right there. And uh, so uh, how has that changed? Well, recognizing that this is exactly what Jesus says that it is. Okay, so and and so, uh, but but the sin. I mean, uh, do you? Um, Luther, well, Lutherans would agree uh, with him. Uh, but this is exact. This this Lord's Supper is exactly what deals with the sin. Exactly, exactly. So so if you don't recognize yourself as a sinner, right? That it, it's that lack of recognition of self as sinner uh, that makes one an unworthy recipient of the body and blood of Christ, right? Why, how are you guilty of Christ's body and blood? Uh, let, let's, just, let's just take the Lord's Supper totally out of it, right? How would one be guilty of the body and blood of Christ? The greatest way that you can be guilty of Christ's body and blood is to say, oh, that's just some dude that died on the cross, died on a cross, uh, and it does nothing. Well, if, it's, if, if however, I recognize my need— in other words, if I know why Jesus died on the cross, namely to forgive sins, um, then uh, I don't become guilty of, of, uh, of his body and blood, right? I'm not liable for, uh, for um, saying that it's something other than it is, just a guy dying on a cross. <clears throat> now, if we take and apply this to the sacrament of the altar, where Jesus gives us his body and gives us his blood. And did you notice how quickly he glossed over this is my body, this is my blood? Not a single word about that. Um, uh, you know, as if we're just to understand that this is pure uh, representationalism, uh, not representationalism, but representationalism. That that the bread represents Christ's body and the blood, the wine represents his his blood. Um, here, if I receive what Jesus tells me is his body and blood without recognizing my sin and my need for what Jesus gives me there, then I become guilty of the body and blood of Christ all over again. 
both in the sacrament as well as on the cross. Does this hark back, do you think, uh, to the Jews um, gathered at the feet of Pilate saying his blood be upon us and our children, right? Um, where uh, basically what that is is a claim to, to responsibility for putting to death this person whom they don't think to be the son of God. Mm. Mm. And not for the forgiveness of sins, obviously. I don't know. Well, going back to the to the verses there in question, doesn't it speak to just the confusion that is in the evangelical mind in that you've got to deal with your sin before you actually come to the thing that the Lord has given you to deal with your sin? That That's a huge problem problem i think isn't it I mean, this is yeah. like working out at home before you go to the gym right. i mean right <laughs> it's crazy eating eating a meal at home before going out to eat i mean it it is the it but then it this goes back to the uh lex the lex uh, orindi lex lex orandi lex Corindi, mm-hmm. right this is how this is how they worship so this is how they this is how they think this is how they believe and ironically, there's no confession of sins. There's no dealing with sin prior to the to the to the reception of the sacrament. Well, even, right? well, okay. Like in the Reformed camp, uh, and at the church that I'm thinking of, the church that I, I pastored, there would be a a time of of where you would in the service before the. Uh, before the uh, words of institution were read. A quiet time? A quiet time. Mm-hmm. Soft music, you know, and you, it is, we would read this entire text, and uh, before we came to the words of institution, we would stop right there. The associate pastor or myself would, would say, let's have a time of, of uh, confession before the Lord. Now, there is no pronouncement of absolution. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, this is this is stopping short because it's all as you were talking earlier. You know, it was all subjective. And there's no articulated, no uh, oral out loud confession. Am I right about that? This that, is just me in my heart examining myself. Is that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Before God, we plead guilty of all sins, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Right. But before but it, the pastor, we confess only those sins which we know and feel in our heart. But again, this was dealing with your sin in and of yourself, and then going to do the memorial meal, right? Where you're getting nothing except for bread and juice, and the burden of having to remember properly. Now, those are good ideas and the right thing to do in general. I certainly don't have a problem with them, but I do have a bit of a problem with this being the point with this interpretation for two reasons. One, Paul actually says nothing about the need to confess sin before partaking or making sure we're right with God. That has been imported into the passage by our traditions. And two, 
This explanation actually ignores what Paul telegraphed was the problem, and that is the manner in which the feasting that was part of the Lord's Supper was being conducted and abused. That was the problem he's targeting. I'm I'm not a, <clears throat> I'm I'm not exactly sure how how he's getting out of that verb let a man examine himself uh, a look back to uh, verses 17 and following in chapter 11 um, I mean examine so so there so, so, so how does this play out right I mean right we know, make we know sure we've got this problem you're not a glutton make sure you're not first in line. Right. Examine yourself to make sure you're not getting in front of the poor people. But you don't say examine yourself then. You say don't don't be an ass and get in front of everybody else, right? Um, and, and so, um, you know, there it, it does hark back to an interesting... What is ass in Greek? <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that's a... Uh, uh, you're, you're throwing me for a <laughs> loop here. Um, let's see. Uh, on us on us sure it is yeah, right okay <laughs> um <clears throat> okay so, so so there's an interesting term here that shows up in verse 19 for it is necessary that there be divisions among you in order that the uh, approved the ducky moy might become manifest among you okay the approved or the 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 tested and the word that paul uses here in fact he's gonna oh that's so interesting this this actually probably deserves a lot more talk but uh anyway uh the the, the word that paul uses in verse 28 is dokimas deto so let a man examine himself so the dokimoi are the examined uh, let a man examine himself um um uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sorry. I'm struggling with how to how to get how to get to the problem. Right. You, the, the problem. Do you need is, a whiteboard? I, I probably do. Yeah. So the problem the problem is that what he's saying is is that this self examination has to do with not being an ass, right? But Paul would have said, "Don't be an ass and don't get first in line," as you've pointed out. Um, there are people who are who are worthy of receiving the sacrament, right? These are the ducky moi. And so a man to become a ducky must must examine himself. He must know, in other words, why it is that he's that he's going to this meal. Okay, so your point is is that this is not a physical examination. This is a theological examination. Right, it's not checking your bad behavior. In, right, in, 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 right. In this checking sort. what you're believing about what's going on here. Right, and and recognizing who you are in relation to the thing that you are receiving. Right, uh, you are a sinner receiving the forgiveness of sins in, with, and under the bread and wine, which are the body and blood of Christ. Now, see, he would just say, "Well, you just imported in, with, and under." From your religious okay, tradition. Okay, you're, you're right. Okay, and I can get rid of that. I, I don't need to say that. Uh, all I can say is that you're receiving the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, which is God's remembering, Christ's remembering, the poor sinful humanity and saving them. And this is coming from do, dokimoi. 
Dokimoi. From Dokimoi, right? And Dokimas Dato. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, I think he's constructed, again, what he's done all the time, this sort of uh, theory um, to try to account for the words in different ways than, than they actually read. Uh, and, um, yeah, this is interesting. In First um, Corinthians, Second thir- Corinthians thirteen. Um, we pray to God that you do no, not not even one evil, not in order that we might ap- appear ducky moy, but in order that you might do the good and we might be a dokimoi. Uh, it's interesting, right? Or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay. Now what I'm suggesting is that Paul actually tells us what he means by partaking in an unworthy manner. And once we understand that, the rest of the passage falls into place. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner means conducting the Lord's Supper and its feast in the manner Paul just condemned, taking too much food so that others go hungry by getting drunk at the meal, doing something that humiliates those who don't have as much, that sort of thing. Now, if we accept this idea that committing the kinds of abuses Paul specifically describes is what Paul means by eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, how does that help us understand the rest of the passage? Well, First, we ought to examine ourselves, that is, make sure we aren't guilty of doing any of those things. Now, since most churches today don't practice a full feast in connection with the Lord's Supper, it might be advisable to apply Paul's words to avoid any abuse of fellowship against fellow believers, which is a pretty wide net. Examining yourself is not the same as preventing yourself from doing those things. And, and this is the problem. This, this is where the problem lies with his interpretation of this passage. It comes down to that one word. And then he takes from that word and he extrapolates out and then takes it everywhere else. And then he uses John 6 as that not being the Lord's Supper to, to bolster this argument. I think that's exactly what he's up to. But doing so will protect us from the Lord's discipline in this manner. So when we get together to observe the Lord's Supper, however we do it, we need to make sure that we aren't doing something that is of a divisive nature, because Paul cites factionalism in the passage, or that we're humiliating people, or that something is going on where we're being cliquish, or perhaps doing something to create classes within the church, that sort of thing. I mean, there are a number of ways we could specifically apply that. Okay, I'm having a really hard time with that. He's saying here that if we are cliquish, if we're doing something, I mean, he's already pointed out that we at, at I mean, most churches don't have a, a full-blown meal, so we really can't do this getting drunk or getting in front of other people or, or, or whatever. He's saying that those things right there are, as Paul goes on to talk about, this is why some of you are sick. This is why some of you die. Died, yeah. As as a result of just being, as you say, an ass at the Lord's Supper? At At the agape. Why in the world? I mean, when I think about people dying, uh, 
you know, you look at, we've mentioned before about Aaron's sons. We think about uh, Uzzah, the guy that, that touches the ark. We, we think about Ananias and Sapphira. We, we think about all of these people who, like, died at church. I mean, died doing holy things. It's some things they thought were right, like, like, you know, like trying to steady the ark. It was better for the ark to fall on the ground than it was for somebody to touch it because God said, this is the way you move the ark. You don't move it any other way. You move it the way I tell you to move it. Or it can be dangerous. See, it's like this whole idea. We've talked about it before. Holiness is a wonderful thing, and God wants to share it with us. But if we do it, if we try to attain it in, an, in a, um, a way that's not prescribed, we're the ones that get, you know, fried, so to speak. So what you're talking about, it's, it strikes me, is, is, the, is that there's this holiness outside of us, right? All these examples you're talking about is this holiness outside of us. That God wants to give to us Ex- because it's good, it's a blessing, it's a gift, and he's generous with his gifts. And that's the kind of thing, mishandling that holiness is the kind of thing that gets you killed, not uh, sharing a sharp word with a, a neighbor or taking errors to yourself uh, or something like that. Or not reconciling with my brother before I go and receive the sacrament. And we're not saying, don't let anyone hear us saying that we think this is a bad thing. No, no. Or a good thing, that that you ought to just sort of be an unreconciled boob uh, and uh, take errors at the sacrament and other things like that. We're not saying that at all. Um, That falls into the category of the sin that one must recognize and repent of, right? In, in, in his self-examination. But what we are doing is we're looking at the nature of God from the very beginning. And this is the way that God has always acted. He's always operated. Nothing changes when it comes to the Lord's Supper. He's still doing exactly what he has set out to do. You look back even to the Garden of Eden. We've talked about this before. There was an eating. There was a blessing. And there was a curse attached to various physical things that people ate. It's the same thing. Correct. And so and so what you're saying is that that what we have in the sacrament of the altar minimally what we know is that it is a very holy thing. Correct. So much so that Jesus says, "Look, even when there is the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to do this again." Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's going to keep on going on. This is the the, the, the thing at the center of Christian worship. Now, um, Anna and, and, would say, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Anna would say, when we do it again in the new heavens and the new earth, he's not going to say, now, okay, now, now make sure you don't jump in, in front of anybody and, uh, oh, oh, don't be gluttonous. I mean, don't be cliquish. Correct. <laughs> and, um, and moreover, we would say that this very holy thing, we know exactly what it is. It is the body and blood of Jesus, which he himself says it is. That's the holiness of the thing. And then on top of that, isn't there just a, 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 a repeat of this where Paul says, this cup of blessing, is this not the, the blood of Christ? I mean, he tells us, is this bread not the body of Christ? You're right. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Yes, exactly. But again, the interpretation of is this not the body of Christ is, oh, it's talking about the church body. We've heard that before. And, and, and that's, that falls flat on its face, right? Uh, because in verse 27, Paul talks about blood and, and body. 
as opposed to just body. Precisely. Second, the phrase discerning the body would therefore mean assessing the needs of those who have come to the feast to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Assessing the needs of the corporate body of Christ, the local church. Well, what do you know? There, there he said it, right? He is taking this, instead of it being Christ's body, now it becomes, oh, it's the local body of believers, just like I said, which he, does, he probably doesn't even know that you've pointed out before. This is a liberal interpretation. Correct. Right to get out of to get out of the uh, well, it's it's the whole welcoming congregation kind of thing, the radical hospitality kind of thing, um, and you incorporate people into the body uh, by giving them the sacrament of the altar, and that does it. And you know, it's sort of an ex opera operato thing, which is which is scary. Um, and you know, uh, the problem is that that. All of a sudden, we have this shift in terminology to the to soma as being to body as being the body, the mystical body of Christ, the congregation. When just you know um, a few breaths before, we have guilt of the body and blood of Christ, right? So what is that? I mean, is that guilt gu- guilt about the 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 mystical body of Christ, the church, and what is the mystical blood of Christ? I have no clue. And, and, and then, um, and, and then that's the same, same thing as a denial. So this is used to deny what St. Paul says or what Jesus says in verse 25, right? This is my body. And then again, in verse 26, this is my, this is my blood. Uh, bad theology. Well, no doubt. And, you know, I'm not trying to throw uh, Michael Heiser under the bus, you know, but to be a scholar— and then, you know, I think about eating. I feel like the entire time that he has been going along here, he's just like pulling the teeth out of everything that the Scripture is saying, just one by one, just, oh, you can call it, you know, detoothing, defanging. I mean, like, where it's left with nothing but, like, flapping gums. It's, there's nothing here anymore. He is, he is robbing it of, of what the text what the Lord, number one, wants us to give, or wants to give, and secondly, what the text clearly says. Which, in the evangelical world, when you do this and you believe this, you really are left with just you. The, your, the Holy Trinity becomes you, yourself. And your feelings. And your feelings. Yeah, that's probably right. You, yourself, and your feelings, right? That's the Holy Spirit. In the immediate passage, the body of Christ would therefore be the Corinthian church, their local body of believers. In our case, it's our own congregation. Are there those we fellowship with that we're neglecting or humiliating in some way? I know this sounds simple, maybe too simple for some of you, but it's actually what's found in the text. Now, how can I be sure? Well, just look at how Paul finishes the chapter. Look at how he finishes his discussion of the Lord's Supper. He tells readers what he's thinking, and in doing so, answers the questions we just raised. So let's pick up at verse 33. Quote, So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, 
Let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Unquote. Paul's referencing his earlier warning here about eating unworthily, lest judgment come. And he does so by warning people to avoid pigging out before everyone else, especially more poor believers, before they get a chance to eat. If you're just there for eating, hey, you have your own home for that. Essentially, he says that if you're that hungry, eat at home so the less fortunate in the congregation don't get cheated at the communal meal and also humiliated in the process. I would therefore propose that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is really simple, to remember the Lord's death until he comes and proclaim that death, the gospel, to any onlookers. Avoiding God's displeasure when doing so is also easy to understand, but conditioned by the way the supper was conducted in the first century. Don't turn it into a spectacle and an occasion where fellow believers, especially the poor, are deprived or humiliated or otherwise disfellowshipped in something that you do within your own local body. What he said, ju- what he just said, Why do I need to put something in my mouth and eat or drink it to do what he just said? Even though Jesus clearly says, take, eat, take, drink. What he just explained requires no no eating, no chewing, no no swallowing. You're, you're saying you're saying the the remembering and the and the proclaiming and, right? and being nice yeah. to the people around right. you and thinking about everybody else. Right, right. It it, it doesn't require any of that sort of stuff. Does Again, it? Yeah. Yeah. we're just yeah. we're just ripping out teeth. Right. And what is the um, uh, what are they being? If look, if the poor are just being robbed of a meal. In a sense, you you would say, big deal. And I don't want that to sound callous, right? I mean, we want the poor to be fed and all that sort of thing. Uh, but, but really, this that's all that they're being robbed of is is a meal. Um, is the problem maybe? Anyway, don't include any of that. I just his this is so confused. I don't even know how to react to it. It's like it's like being, uh, you know, Virginia. This is so. Say it again. This is this is so confused that I don't even know how to how to interact with it. It's like a um, a, a scrub team playing the top seed in the in March Madness, right? And and um, and playing their confused form of barn ball and throwing the the really good team off their game, right? There, there's just this utter confusion here. You almost don't even know where to dip in and start pulling the threads apart. Well, as you have mentioned before, there's clearly going to be rich people in the early church because they're the ones who bring all of the supplies for the meal anyway. And there's going to be people who clearly cannot they ca- they cannot uh, bring anything except themselves or their family, which is glorious. But automatically, you've got a a division, so to speak, between the haves and the have-nots. We don't do that today at church because, you know, people give of their resources, and this is what allows, you know, somebody at the church to go out and buy everything that we need, and not one family is providing things. 
Right. And and so is is this is what's going on actually is sort of a hogging of the forgiveness of sins, right? Is that what the issue is that that you get the rich people who like they're saying, "Look, man, we brought all the good stuff. We're going to eat before any any of you poor people can eat." I don't know. I mean, but but again, you've got to you got to make stuff up to to try to account for it along the lines of this notion that the body is the body of Christ, the church. And so, you know, now we're starting to move into psychology. Why? (laughs) Why won't the evangelical just even forget these texts? Just go back throughout their Bible and see that God ties himself to physical things, as we've mentioned time and time again. Why, Why is that so heinous of a thought? Is it is it because of the uh, too Catholic? I mean, is it the the Catholic thing that's too Catholic? I I just can't go there, or is it I am really at peace and at home with this mystical Jesus that I find in the recesses of my own heart and through my swaying back and forth? I mean, I just would love to know what is it. Why we've got to listen to a Heiser do all of this. Uh, you know this this um, do, do this dance here, and us agree with him. Even though you listen to it and go, this is so confusing. I don't even know how to how to get my arms around it. Isn't isn't the old Adam the original and first and foremost enthusiast? Right. I mean this this plays. This kind of theology plays right into the into the genetic makeup of of the old uh, creature that wants nothing to do with the objective works of God. Finally, and wants to find God in Himself. Uh, you know, it comes of His own resources. That that like, I mean, think about the original sin, the first sin. Adam agrees in his heart with something that God has not said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. He looks at it and says, "Yeah, that looks pretty good. Um, That's enthusiasm. That's operating and thinking and believing contrary to what God objectively says. And it it strikes me then that the the issue that you've identified here with evangelicals or whoever we're talking about, probably even some Lutherans think this way. Right. Um, It it doesn't matter what (laughs) what label you carry uh, if you think that. Uh, that that Jesus is gotten in a mystical way, you are an enthusiast. Your old Adam, you're feeding your old Adam. You are not relying on the objective words of God, and that's a really bad place to be. And this is why Lutheranism can easily be described as the lonely Lutheran way, because the masses prefer to feed their old Adam and prefer to be an enthusiast. Correct. That's a plucked chicken. Today, since most churches don't connect the commemoration of Jesus' death and future return with a dinner, it might do to have the Lord's Supper also be a reminder to care for the less fortunate in our churches. But now think about it commemorating the Lord's death and future with a dinner sounds suspiciously like 
the Lamb's Supper in our end times discussion, doesn't it? By way of conclusion, before we wrap up, I hope that listeners who recall the first podcast on this subject can see how some of the odd beliefs mentioned back then that are associated with the Lord's Supper ought to give way to the text, and only the text. Catholicism wants to filter the observance through John 6, and then literalize the elements. But John 6 wasn't the Last Supper, and so that's no basis for the doctrine. Early Protestant theologians like Luther and Calvin didn't want their own positions to sound too Catholic, but they were stuck on the notion that something mystical, or they'd probably call it spiritual, was happening at communion, the Lord's Supper. It is not the case at all that Luther was concerned about his position being too Catholic. It did not matter for Luther whether the position that Scripture articulates is Catholic or whatever else it was the position of scripture and so it for him you know this this is called the naked bible podcast right Mm -hmm. for luther um it is the word um the word and the word alone that drives his entire exegesis right and he i mean this guy uh is ignoring just a cardinal piece of what luther was doing uh, uh in this wonderful anecdote at the Colloquy of Marburg with Zwingli in 1526, I think it's 26, maybe 29, he writes on the table in chalk, Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, and he will not give up those words. Why? Because it's God's word, and God's word cannot be bartered away. Um, And so, uh, ironically, he has used John 6, with Luther, which Luther rules out as being applicable to the sacrament of the altar for the same reasons he does. He says it doesn't apply, right? And, and has failed to reckon with Luther's position that it's in the very words of Christ that he says, this is my body. That hasn't even come up. Isn't that fascinating? Well, something else that hasn't come up is no other church father. What what did the church or what did the early church think about what he's talking about, the Lord's Supper? What did, they called it the antidote for death, the medicine of immortality. He he's not referenced any of that. He's taken history and just just ignored it completely. Isn't that interesting? And that's another facet I think of evangelical theology. Right, is doing theology in a vacuum, um, and uh, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with being super tied to the scriptures, right? Uh, but what the scriptural interpreter must always bear in mind is that he is a child of his own age. Um, and many of the heresies uh, that are committed today by theologians could be prevented if they just knew a little bit of church history. I think about how uh, a chiropractor friend of mine used to tell me to eat close to the vine like McDonald's and Hardee's and pizza, are they're not close to the vine. They're about as far away as you can get from the vine. So you get, the closer to the vine you get, the better off you are. Now, I don't heed that advice, but it's still good advice. And I think about the uh, early church fathers. They are the vine. I mean, they're right there at the vine. They were the ones who knew the apostles. They were the ones... Uh, who 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 knew Saint Paul? They were the ones who were their proteges. 
They were the ones who were the protégés of the apostles themselves. They are the ones who knew, and they wrote extensively. And we just totally ignored what they've said. Right, and jumped up to, what, Swingley in 1520, you know, 1520, whenever we want to say. Um, uh, there's one other thing that he was about to say, right? Um, uh, the, the spiritual, dis, something spiritual is happening. There's a disagreement between Luther and Calvin. I would love to hear what he's got to say about that. All right. And then going back to this, Calvin and Luther thought that something mystical or they would say spiritual was happening in the Lord's Supper. Maybe, just maybe, it was happening in the Lord's Supper. Maybe they were right, is what you're saying. That's yes, correct. Right, right. And, and actually, there is no, there is no theologian, um, and I don't even know about Zwingli. I'd have to you know, look into Zwingli a little bit. But is he saying that there is absolutely nothing of spiritual, uh, uh, and actually, you know, Lutherans don't like to talk like this. We, we don't like to talk about spiritual or non-spiritual kind of things. That there is, let's put it this way, that there is, what he's saying is that there's no transaction occurring here in the sacrament of the altar. There's nothing going on. No, everything resides in you and within you. We, as we've already heard, the remembering has got to take place within you. The examination has got to take place within you, meaning that you're, as you say, not being an ass to everybody else who's there. Considering the body of the church, that takes place within you. And then, as he just said, a meal that uh, helps us uh, think about, however he put it, uh, you know, the others in the congregation are those less fortunate than you. That's all you. It's all within you. There is no trans transaction. It's a one-way street, as we've talked about before. Uh, you know, the, the direction is you to God, nothing having to do with God towards you. <clears throat> and the very words of the sacrament of the altar— Put it the other way around. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. For the forgiveness of your sins. Precisely. That Jesus was somehow present and the act was sacramental in some way in terms of dispensing grace. These ideas are superfluous when we note that what Paul says is linked to an event divorced from John 6 and that the only command associated with the Lord's Supper demands that we do it to remember the Lord's death and declare that event until he returns. What about take and eat? Aren't those commands? Take and eat and take and drink. Uh, take and drink. This is my blood, which is for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? So he is, he's, he is absolutely... Um, uh, operating in a in an exegetical vacuum here where he is not he's tried to use John 6 to he said John 6 doesn't apply but now we're going to apply it uh and he's taken Paul's uh relation of the of the um institution of the sacrament and that only and he has completely ignored what Matthew Mark and Luke say It's hard to imagine how Paul could make things any simpler than by saying do this in remembrance of me. You don't need any mystical presence for that. So I marvel at how so many other ideas have accrued to this simple command. Now, sadly, these misconceptions have led 
many Protestant denominations to forbid children from the observance of the Lord's Supper. And that's because they've wrongly associated it with some sort of reception of grace, all the while trying to not sound Catholic while saying that. If you think something mystical is happening at the observance, then I can see why children would be excluded. But to be honest, even that logic has problems. But if we attach the meaning of the observance to what is actually commanded, to do it to remember the cross, then why would it be a bad idea for children to be reminded of what Jesus did on the cross? That just doesn't make any sense. I would argue that's just completely unnecessary and misguided. Everyone, including children, should partake and remember how Jesus died on the cross and that someday they will get to observe the supper with the Lord himself when he returns. Frankly, that might just capture their imagination a bit, and that would be a good thing. <laughs> oh, Pastor Frost, this, I, I look forward to this time with you just to see you shake your head and uh, for your brow to furrow and for you to be so uh, discombobulated at listening to this heretical mess. It is a heretical mess. I can hardly... Uh, ev- there are so many crazy ideas in what he just said that I don't even know where to start. Well, there right? was a real grab bag at the, at the end there. Oh, it was a huge grab bag, right? Uh, sort of going after every hobby horse he, he could. Um, you know, if, if uh, but he's right. I mean, he, he's exactly right. If there is nothing going on here, if this is not the Lord's body and blood, and if a person needn't examine himself and so uh, eat and drink of what the Lord gives, then, yeah, let anybody take it, right? Non-believers, uh, uh, children, just for any and all. For any and all, right. But his beginning premise, right? So here's the, that's the conclusion. <clears throat> that's kind of where he's, he's wound up. His beginning premise is completely faulty. And his beginning premise is that there is nothing in the Lord's Supper, nothing in the bread and wine. The bread and wine is nothing. It's not the body and blood of Christ, and it's not for any purpose like the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, why not? Why not do it this way? Well, for that matter, I mean, we don't, we don't even have to stop at bread and wine, right? I mean, it could be, it could be, uh, you know, for the children, we could have crackers and, uh, you know, a Kool-Aid. Good, and that's interesting because he was just talking about a supper before, right? I mean, isn't this weird that a meal would commemorate the Lord's death or a dinner? A dinner is the word he used. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that we ought to have meals uh, like like potluck suppers in memory of Jesus' death. And I want to add one last thing. He, he has warned us against importing things into the text. Right. Well, guess what he's done? He has imported memory. He, he said that this is memory of Jesus' cross. Right. right? That, was a, that, was a, that was something new. It is. Oh, I guess. I, I, I see where he's getting it. It's in verse 26, right? Uh, for as often as you eat this cup and drink this, or eat, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death, right? Okay, so that's that's where he's getting it from. But what cross am I supposed to remember? Are you supposed to go crawling back to the cross of two thousand years do ago? Do I do I think about that silver cross that we've got in church, or what about the gold cross that's uh, that's up on the Reredos? Do I think about um, 
you know what what cross am I supposed to, there's there's different interpretations of 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 the actual of the actual cross you know I mean was the was the upright pole always there and and Jesus was hoisted up on the uh, on the cross beam and uh, after he was nailed to that and then and then his feet were nailed or or was it a um, you know, an entire cross where we lifted it up and his body dropped into the into the hole. You know, I mean, what what cross? Right. Because I want to make sure I do this correctly. Correct. Right. Yeah. You because if I don't do it correctly, this is why my nose is running. Uh, yeah. You know, this is why I'm starting to get a little sick. Am I? Do I need to prepare for my funeral here because I'm not remembering it correctly? It's just, it's just crazy. It's just craziness. It's just absolute craziness. And but he said at the very beginning, when you see it like this, everything falls into place. And my question is, what does he do with his sin? I don't know what he does with his sin. I think he probably feels like it's been nailed to the cross of Christ, right? So it's in the rear view mirror, as right. we've talked about before. Right. Um Where is the assurance of salvation? Where's the tangible And how does he know it's for him? He takes the Lord's Supper and he is he is not receiving anything. But he better be looking around, making sure that there's nobody uh, in his presence or in his church that's being humiliated in some way, or, or he's not being what do you say, cliquish or or what have you. Mm-hmm. It's just the directionality is so screwed up. Yeah. But then we use the Bible to to explain this poverty. I mean, this is this is not Christianity. Right. This is a recipe for how to run a country club isn't it anyone who's in the club they're in the club no members uh higher than anyone else and uh treat them treat them that way yeah sad all right i don't know where we're gonna go after this we'll probably have to uh not make any podcasts for a while just to to sit and uh stew let this one like maybe flee from our memory for a little while (laughs) i think um I think this has been the most disappointing of, of all those that we've read why, or, or listened to. Why would you say? Because there's such obvious learnedness in in his treatment of this and careful thinking. Well, I mean, apparently careful thinking, right? To think that this is where it ends up um, and to see the critical missteps early on and and how you carry that out from from those critical missteps is is really disheartening. Some of these other guys have been rather flip or flippant about things that's, in a sense, easier to deal with. It's more like it's ignorance. And here, this guy's clearly working very carefully with the text and still reading it against itself. And guess who those other flippant guys are listening to? This guy. This guy. He justifies their position. Mm You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.